You may know that I was, still am, a serial entrepreneur. You may not know that I was one of the founding members of the North Texas Angel Investor Network and made investments in startup companies. Startup companies heavily depend on investments from angel investors. But investing in a company in such an early stage is a high-risk proposition. You may lose your entire investment. Trust plays a major role in making that investment decision. In this episode, I'm happy to introduce a friend of mine, one of the early members of the North Texas Angel Network, a serial entrepreneur himself, and a serial angel investor, Jim Fontaine. Together, we will discuss how angel investors decide if they trust the entrepreneur enough to invest in their startup company in such an early and risky stage. Right after this. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? Jim, welcome to the Trust Show. Thanks for having me. So, give me, give us, uh, give our readers, uh, listeners, I should say, uh, some background about you. Uh, your background as an entrepreneur. Your background as an investor. Well, I started out about you know, a little over forty years ago with electrical engineering degree. Moved to Texas to work at Texas Instruments, but quickly got into the startup activity in the mid '80s. There was a group of a bunch of us who were average age twenty six started our first company high-tech company. Since then, I've been involved in uh, six startups or the co-founder of six different startups and then became an angel investor around 2012 or so and was involved in about 10 other startups. So about a total of 16 startups over the last 40 years. Okay. And uh, what's your, I don't know if you want to share this or not, and it's okay if you say no. Uh, what's your uh, track record in making those investments? Do you consider yourself successful? Well, um, you know, a definition of an angel investor or venture capitalist investor is out of 10 deals, five go away, five, you lose your money pretty quickly. And then out of the remaining five, one or two or three, you might have a, I call them a single or a double. And then what you're looking for is a grand slam home run out of the 10 to pay for the other nine. So out of the six startups, and some are, are still undetermined yet, I had a I call single, double, strike out and home run. And then we've got two that are, you know, players on first base and players on second base, put it that way. Okay. So that's pretty good. Uh, let, let's talk about uh, making investment in a startup. I remember building my own startups and, uh, and I know how risky it is, uh, but uh, why do you make a, an investment as an angel? What's, what's the reward that you expect? What, what's the risk that you're willing to take? Well, as an angel investor, um, let, me, let me distinguish between angel investors and venture capitalists, first of all. So an angel investor is typically someone like myself, someone like you. Typically, they were entrepreneurs before. They retired, typically an older age group, or they left their business or had an exit. And they want to uh, still have some of the excitement, some of the juice, if you will, to be involved in startups 
but this time more as a as a grandparent rather than a than a parent. And so part of the motivation is to make money, but a big part of it is to be involved, give back to the community, be involved in startups, help startups, uh, share with uh, CEOs and management team your experience, and then be successful. When you're a venture capitalist, I think you're much more worried about purely the return. Because frankly, the returns on investment are very risky. And if angel investors are purely looking for a way to get a return of 20% or 30%, there are much safer ways to do it than involved in angel investing. Um, so part of my motivation was to be involved and help young entrepreneurs. And uh, I, have, I haven't done any angel investing for a while. Part of it, I concluded that I'm probably not a very good investor because I violate some of the basic rules of investing. And that is, I very easily um, fall in love with the technology. I mean, technology can be very seductive. I very easily fall in love with technology and I very easily fall in love with the, with the founders and the CEO of the company. And, and you can't do that if you really want to be a successful uh, investor. So, um, again, I was on a board of quite a few of these companies and try to help them through. But it's, it is very, very highly risky. Again, there's a lot safer ways and probably, at least for the last 10 years, real estate would be a much better way to make returns on your money much safer. I would say right now, uh, investing bonds or CDs, they're over 5%. I mean, it's not 20%, 50%. But uh, it's pretty safe. Well, we'll see. Uh, we're recording this episode as uh, the government uh, is trying to push the debt limit. And uh, if they don't, then uh, they might start defaulting on those uh, bonds. Right. I'm right. not giving any investment advice here. So, you know, you're risking money. Do you not care? Are you not oh. afraid? No, you, you, you definitely care. Um, I was... Um, the North Texas Angel Network, we had a rotating set of chairmen, and I was chairman of the group, co-chairman of the group for a year or so. And we tried to put together uh, instructions or guidelines for the new angels coming in. And we would tell them, you can't come in and try to cherry pick one or two deals because statistically, you got to have at least 10 deals. You'd like to have 20 over a period of time so that statistically, you can come out with some level of return. And... Uh, um, I forget the, what was the question now. Um, if you don't care, if you're not afraid of the uh, oh, of losing your so investment. You, you, you never want to lose your money. Um, and I'd say over those 10 investments or 11 investments I did, um, I'm a little bit above break even, but certainly not to my satisfaction, And which is partly the reason why I quit investing, because um, with as much work I was putting in, you'd like to have a higher return. But again, I typically an angel investor is not doing it as a living. He's not doing it with a a big portion of his or her financial base. We would tell investors, you know, don't ever go over 5% and so on. So we, we try to get people to understand that there's a very, very high risk. A venture capitalist is different. They're investing somebody else's money. They have to have returns. They target for 30% returns. And you can see what happens with their, some funds do fantastic and other funds do very, very poorly. So even the highly paid professionals have a difficult time making a good return in the, in the venture industry. So, you know, let's, let's jump. This is, after all, the trust show. Let's talk about the trust. So you're about to invest. Uh, what makes you, what gets you to the point where you say, I mean, obviously, the reward is going to be financial, but as you said, it's not only financial. And, and I, I'd agree. When I look at the investments that I made, it, it wasn't 
I, I wouldn't invest in just any company. I would only invest in a company that I knew their business. So I kind of minimized the risk. You probably did the same thing. You knew the market or the industry enough to mitigate the risk compared to other people who don't know anything about the market. Uh, you like the entrepreneurs, but at some point there is a risk. And, and to compensate for that risk, you have to trust that they know what they're doing or you have to trust other things. So how do you, how do you go about that? How, how do you decide, oh, yeah, I trust them with my money? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, trust is earned. And in the case of this, you, especially when you're meeting brand new entrepreneurs that you don't know that um, maybe nobody else knows, uh, that is a big leap. Often, most angel investors uh, would put money into deals that another angel brought them, brought the deal in. Another angel knew the founders. Another angel, um, you know, had a history with them. And so, therefore, you can kind of transfer their trust over to uh, fr from that other angel investor to yourself. Oh, but you're also, touching on the trend, trust law number five: trust is transferable. Exactly. But yeah. what if nobody knows them? Well, we had a pretty structured due diligence process. We would break it up into five main categories and um, divide it up. So I'd say, "Tell what, Yoram, why don't you take the financial part? I'll take the technology part." Someone else take all the legal issues, someone else do uh, on the team members. And so we did a pretty thorough due diligence on their past, their references, and try to get to know them, try to spend time with them. Um, they would be, you know, uh, grilled pretty heavily by a, a team of investors that are thinking about it. And the idea, the, the plan was that if any red flag pops up, let's, let's walk. Um, in other words, we're, you know, again, I, I mentioned that I, I wasn't so great at it because I often look for reasons to invest, but you sort of look for reasons to not invest. You're supposed to look for reasons to, to you know, kick it out and not do it. But over time, if the, and it's usually the CEO, if the CEO um, gives you straight answers, you can get, um, when you double check the background, you find that it was a straight shooter. You find that they're not trying to hide things. You find they're trying, they admit things when they had mistakes and so on. We had a couple of, uh, groups that came in and we went into the diligence process. And then we just started finding out some things that they seem to be exaggerating more about their past, or they seem to, uh, things didn't quite line up uh, in terms of what they were doing. And I'd rather have an entrepreneur say, you know, I did this startup and we failed miserably. I was just, you know, an idiot about it. I should have done this, should have done that. I learned a lot of lessons versus an entrepreneur that comes in and says everything they've ever done was, was just perfect. So part of it is is developing trust for them that you think that they're telling you the honest truth. And that is, um, especially if you're going to be on their board, you realize there's going to be lots and lots of problems. And, you know, if you understand a problem and you're honest about the problem and you try to break it down and go try to solve it, uh, that's a good way to do it. But if you have entrepreneurs that aren't telling you the full truth or only want to give you the good news or different things like that, that's not a way to solve problems. And it's also not a company you want to invest in or be part of. You know, you, you brought out several things and, and, you know, as you can imagine, having worked on the trust issue, have it even as a logo on my shirt, everything you say, I'm starting to break it down into this model. You said something interesting. Uh, you said that trust is being earned, uh, which means that, uh, the, and you, you talked about spending time with them and, and drilling into them uh, quite a lot. I mean, what would you say, how many hours, and I know I'm, I'm asking this out of the blue, but how many hours would you say you have spent 
with the entrepreneur or with the team of entrepreneurs that you didn't know, that nobody recommended before, until you got to the point where you said, you know what, I can read them well enough, I can trust them. They earned my trust. And, and I'm not talking about the fact that what they're saying are the right things, but just how much time would you say that uh, you would spend with them before you make the investment decision? Um, I mean, in terms of total time, it might be, um, uh, as far as length goes, uh, at minimum a month, sometimes two months on and off. Um, and again, it depends on what part of it you do diligence. If you do diligence, the part with the team members, you would spend more time. I particularly always was a little bit suspect. I'll tell you about my first angel deal, a non-structured angel deal. I had um, started a company. I got bought by a company in Silicon Valley, and I moved to Silicon Valley for a few years from Dallas and 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 then left that company. And while I was out there, I met literally met a guy in a garage working on a piece of technology. It was called a DAA. Basically, back in the days, this was uh, late Oh, you're 90s. kidding me. Digital... Digital to analog. Uh, this is you're talking about uh, modems. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a you said digital analog, which threw me off. It's DA uh, access. It's basically the uh, telephone companies required you to isolate the lines from the phones or whatever else you're using back then. You got your phones from them, but every modem had to have this little isolation thing, and it used it used. Um, um, use transformers and so on. So this guy had come up with a way to do it optically, optically coupled way. And also he said it could actually analyze the phone lines and give you better performance and everything else. And I thought I had discovered this diamond in the rough and I was going to, you know, bring everything I'd done in terms of starting companies. And so I started out as a, just to be an angel investor and try to pull in some other angel investors. And quickly the, the, the first angel investor said, um, I'll put in 400,000. This is back in 98. I'll put in 400,000, but you got to be the CEO. And I said, well, I, I'm trying to be an investor, not a, well, you got to be the CEO at least for a while. So we did it. I pulled together a quick team. We had a small team of four or five. We got into a customer at the time. Um, 3Com was a big modem provider. They quickly evaluated the product. Texas Instruments was a big supplier of chips that went into modems. And so we went from zero to, you know, 100 miles an hour in a matter of four or five months. TI was going to buy the company for $50 million. And then we found we couldn't quite get our test data to match the test data of Texas Instruments or of, of 3Com. And we struggled and we struggled and we struggled. And we started getting sus uh, suspicious of the entrepreneur, the founder. And uh, he was very protective of this lab. So one weekend when he went back to Silicon Valley, we all came into the company and some other engineers, we set up a rental of tests. And sure enough, our test matched TIs and 3Coms. It did not match the founder. And I remember I was just shaken to the core. I couldn't believe that this guy would lie to me, would make up data. And uh, when he showed up the next Monday, I, I sat him down and, and I said, um, so there's one of two possibilities. Either you're an absolutely horrible engineer or you're a bold-faced liar. Which one is it? And he looked at me and said, I'm a horrible engineer. And I said, well, either way, you're going to have to leave the company. So we tried to salvage what was left of it, and there really wasn't much. But he had, he had falsified the data. He had lied about what he had. Um, I've got to believe that he somehow thought he could get over the finish line at some point. But when you present actually data, that's that's 
kind of Theranos kind of uh, of uh, activity. And, um, you know, TI said goodbye, COM21 or 3COM said goodbye. And uh, even though I hadn't lied or the other people hadn't lied, we got associated with that individual in terms of that, that startup. And so ever since then, I've been very leery of, of, of what people have to say and really try to dig into it. But in the end, you, you, you don't know. You're just going to have to go down the path with them and hope for the best. Well, but you still have uh, done some uh, due diligence and uh, before that. So it's not like you haven't done anything. I, I think, uh, again, if I'm looking at the, uh, the, not the trust model, but the eight laws of trust, the, the eighth law is that trust, the level of trust that you had in that entrepreneur or in any entrepreneur for that matter, let, let, let's, let's even generalize it further. The level of trust that any investor would have in any entrepreneur is the product of the investor's trustfulness, their willingness to trust entrepreneurs in general or, or specifically in that stage and the specific entrepreneur's uh, trustworthiness. And, and I think it sounds like, uh, you know, we call it the, uh, once beaten, twice shy, but uh, really what it does is uh, it hurts your trustfulness. The next entrepreneur you looked at, you already discounted uh, that that formula for yourself. Yeah, that's true. And, um, and I think I, um, and I wasn't successful. Uh, what I liked about that entrepreneur is I liked him a lot personally. He was a very personable guy. He wasn't, um, I mean, he wasn't a snake oil salesman or a pitch person. He was just seemed like a down to earth, honest person. And, uh, you know, you just got to be careful. You're, you're, you're not just making buddies. You're, you're, you're getting other people to put their money into a company. Eventually that company, we shut it down and whatever money was left, we gave back to the investors. Yeah. So that was By the way, the reason I knew what DAA was, uh, I had sold in 2000, I sold the company to PCTEL and I'm sure the yeah. name PCTEL came around yeah. in that business. Well, interesting enough, there is a company started in um, Austin that I knew the, the founders very well because they were at Sirius Logic where I was at. Sirius Logic had bought Crystal Semiconductor and they also had bought my company, Pixel Semiconductor. And the spinoff from that started um, Silicon Labs. And they were making a, a solid state DAA, which did eventually work. And, uh, and they did quite well with that. Yeah, that was the DAA that we used. And, uh, you know, th this, it only shows how the world, how small the world is. Uh, mm -hmm. When I was working at Texas Instruments, one day I received an offer to go and work in Silicon Labs. But that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad I went wireless uh, in my in my career. But uh, again, to go back, if I, you look at the entrepreneur, you, you gave, you kind of gave two options. And uh, one of them was the, uh, competence. You said either you're a terrible engineer and the other was personality compatibility. And personality compatibility has, you know, it has the absolute components like you're lying to me and you you touched on one of those. Uh, but it also has other components, which I'll touch in, in a minute. But so at the end, was he, in your opinion, I mean, I know what he told you, but in your opinion, was he not competent or was he lying? Um, you know, it, uh, in some ways that, that's kind of why I made the statement to him. And in some ways it didn't really matter. And I wasn't going to say there's yeah, any gray, yeah. there's no gray area here. You, we went out on a limb and, uh, interesting enough, uh, a few years later with a different company that I was involved with, uh, Microtune, we were selling 
uh, silicon tuners and we were selling them into uh, Cisco was one of the customers that were building um, cable modems. And so I walk into a meeting and there is this guy sitting at the, at the table with in Cisco meeting. And uh, I thought, well, I'm trying to, I'm trying to get them to buy our product. He acted like we were all buddies, like nothing happened. And people around him said, oh, this guy, I won't use his name. This guy's really a good guy and everything else. And I wanted to say, well, you better be careful. But any case, he either he was uh, continued to be incompetent, but a good liar or a good fooler because he had a pretty strong position at uh, at Cisco a few years later. So, you know, you brought an interesting point. You said it doesn't matter. Uh, and uh, I, I remember, I don't know if you ever watched uh, Simon Sinek had this uh, this video and uh, uh, where he talked about being uh uh, performance versus trust, and and he put them one against the other. Uh, uh, which one do you? If, if you got high performance, high trust, there's no doubt that you're dealing with the right person. Low performance, low trust, there's no doubt you're dealing with the wrong person. But how do you make the compromise between uh, performance and uh, or or competence and uh, let's call it trust? I, I really would look at it as personality compatibility. And uh, one of the things that I didn't like about that was that he was balancing them, saying, you know, this one is more important than that one. What you're, what you just said, kind of confirmed the way I look at them. I multiply them. You know, you get zero on one of them; it doesn't matter which one. Yeah. Still, the the answer is zero. If the person is incompetent, you're not going to trust them. If they're highly competent but a liar, you're not going to trust them. Either way, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Yeah. It. Um I think you, you've, I don't know if it was one of your eight, eight rules or uh, you said people, different people start out differently. I start out um, typically in any kind of relationship, business, friendship, uh, romantic is I have a high level of trust. And um, I, over the years, I've come to tell people you're getting full trust. So don't, you know, the minute you break any of that, it's going to drop way down, you know, whether it goes to zero or not, but I'm giving you full trust. I, so when I said you got to earn trust, that's more of a, a learned behavior that I have in business dealings. But personality-wise, I I just tend to trust people. So you know, it's you bring an interesting point. Uh, who was it? Uh, Ernest Hemingway said the the way to uh, uh, the way to know if you can trust someone is to trust them or something to that extent. Uh, I'm I'm a little hesitant in saying you know if I absolutely know nothing about how trustworthy you are, I'm not going to go full bore and say, I'm going to give you 100% trust. I'm, I'm going to want to at least get a sense of uh, what is the ballpark of your trustworthiness. And then I, I'm I'm with you in that. I'm going to extend more trust, but, but not completely. Are you doing it differently? Are you looking at it differently? Well, I think it's... Um I extend 100% trust, like you said, to the level that I'm willing to accept the negative consequences. So yeah. if you meet a romantic person, I'm going to trust you right away, but I'm not going to uh, give you my bank account. Um, and you slowly develop more and more trust. So I think my point is that I do know people that come into relationships and don't have any trust and they, you know, are always suspicious. So I, I tend to, I think, give a person the highest level of trust that the negative consequences aren't going to... Um, uh, you know, kill me or put me out of business or, you know, harm me in some way. Um, and like I said, so in, in terms of angel investing, you have to, um, they have to earn, obviously earn that. But again, um, what I have found over the years, I remember 
when I was young, I was in my, uh, I think the first company we were starting was we were trying to build a first world's first electronic color darkroom, basically what Adobe Photoshop does today. But back in the days when computers couldn't do any of those things. And um, my partner and I, we were both 27 probably at the time. We went to New York to a venture capitalist. We thought it was so great that we at least got a meeting. And he said, um, my criteria is three points in a technology investment. He said, first of all, the team is an experienced team. Have they done it before? Have they gotten their war wounds? Number two is the market. He said, I don't want to bet on creating a market. It needs to be a big and growing market. And the third thing is um, disruptive technology. And he said, I'm willing to bet on disruptive technology because um, if you can do that, if you can be disruptive and create something great, you can have a great successful company because you've got a team that can execute and you've got a market ready for it. And so in that case, he had divided it down by three areas and said, I don't want to bet on these two, but I'm willing to bet on this one. And um, he said, you guys are no experience, too young. You're trying to develop a market and you're developing technology. He says, I never bet on the trifecta. So obviously he didn't put any money into us. But um, so uh, it kind of goes back to, uh, I think as you get older, you, you want to rely more upon uh, transferred trust from people you know. So going forward, um, after a certain point, I wouldn't invest in any deals unless I knew somebody at least had some connection with them with some background. Yeah. And, you know, it actually puts a pretty significant uh, uh, burden on, let's say, on you if, if you're recommending an investment to somebody else. I mean, you have recommended investment. You brought investors to companies you've invested in, and it kind of puts some burden on you to make sure that you don't violate the trust that they have in you when you recommend a new, uh, a new company. So is it different for you when, when you recommend to somebody else to invest Versus when you make your own investment decision? Um, it, it's obviously different because one is I'm, I'm trusting their input and they got to trust mine. I believed what I did. I tried to do is when I brought in deals and I knew the entrepreneur, I would make it very clear as what I knew about the entrepreneur, what my experience was with him, him, him or her. And also what I didn't know about the entrepreneur or what my concerns might be with the entrepreneur. So I did really want to share you know, because everybody's got their pros and cons and good and bad. Like here, here's the full lay of the land. And um, he knows a lot about sales and this is a very sales oriented product. So I think it'd be good. But if you want to bet on him to know technology, he's, this person's the wrong person. So you try to be very honest. You don't come in with a lot of hype about uh, he's the greatest person or she's the greatest woman that I've ever met and all these kind of things. So you try to give the team and, and the more you do that, the more the other angel investors um, I think gain respect for you and say, okay, I, you're giving us a straight shoot. You know, I, I remember, even though it's uh, not necessarily related to entrepreneurs and startups and investments, uh, but a friend of mine uh, was uh, years ago, um, was interviewing for this company and the CEO, he gave references. He was still working at TI at the time with me and he gave references. So yeah, we have this in common. We both worked at TI, but he gave, uh, he gave, I think three or four references, but the CEO of the company that was going to hire him or making him an offer, uh, he knew me personally. Uh, we were in the same field of Wi-Fi at the time that was even before it was called Wi-Fi. And he just made that one call. He only called me and that was enough for him. So this is kind of the quality versus quantity of transferable trust. But the thing is, when he asked me, what do you think? Um, 
I I knew that if all I'm going to say was just going to be uh, a glowing review, a glowing reference, uh, he's not going to believe me. Uh, yeah. That's, uh, you know, it shows confirmation bias. It shows that I'm, I already am biased in his favor and you can't trust someone like that. And just like you described it, I, I told him, you know, that here are a few things that you may want to think about. And, um, uh, you know, th- these are the areas where I think he's strong, but these are the areas where I think he's weak and, and you make your own decision. But just by saying that, I think, uh, you, you know, the, the element of BS or no BS goes up because they know that you're not just going to give the good, you're going to give the bad as well. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would find when I would do background on, on entrepreneurs was I'd, I'd, you know, call their references and then, but quickly ask who else did they work with? What were, you know, and then try to call people that they weren't on their list. And, yeah. uh, and you'd be surprised about that. The other thing is I found when talking to references, uh, don't just ask the typical questions, start asking about, did you ever travel with this person? What were they like traveling? I mean, start to dig in a bit more and kind of conversationally and people will reveal a lot more. Um, uh, uh, when I talk to the entrepreneurs themselves, they're all prepared for the interview. So they're quickly yeah. going to go into my first job was this, my second. So I'd say, no, 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 no. Let's, let's, wh- wh- where did you grow up? Where did you go to junior high? Tell me about your junior high years. And it, and first of all, they're, they're not expecting that. And people reveal a lot about their character and everything else by talking about grade school, junior high, high school, uh, you know, college, if they went there. And, um, and part of it is trying to get a flavor for that person in terms of their, their integrity, as well as their confidence. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's amazing the things and, and it, again, it goes back into the personality compatibility because sometimes somebody is going to say something to you where, uh, you're going to go, if you did this, if you played a role in this, there's a lot that I know about you. To, to me, by the way, the serving in, in military, 35th Airborne, I know whenever I was looking for somebody, an investor or any anything for that matter, and they knew that, it, it already bought me certain points. It mm-hmm. already created some kind of a uh, an image in their minds of, uh, of who I was. Um, <laughs> you know, y- you said something... Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember how you said, well, I'll get back to it. You also talked about when earning trust, having spent time with them, what part did their body language play in your decision? Were you trying to read the body language to try and see, was it important to you that the meetings are in person versus let's just exchange emails? No, it's very important for me anyway to be in person. I think there's a tremendous amount um, you learn over the body language. Um, and that's why it's some, it's helpful to go, you know, to Starbucks or someplace and get a coffee and see, you know, how do they sit? How do they treat, uh, if you go to a restaurant, how do they treat a waiter? How do they, um, just how they b- basically behave. I mean, there's certain things you can, um, you can check the facts. They worked at this place. They had pretty good reviews, but trying to learn about them, um, in more detail, you you will pick up a variety of things. I I had a uh, as a hedge fund that invested when I was running Microtune as a public company, and that the person would interview us, and you had to be very careful when you talk to uh, as a public company. But he always talked about people's verbal body language, is what he called it. He said he's really looking for people's verbal body language when he asks them a surprising question, or and if they act a certain way, he can 
he can kind of pick out what what's really kind of going on behind the scenes. So yeah, body language is very important, and their their manners, everything else about him is important. It, it it's a because you're basically you're betting on that team to succeed, and you know, and they're going to hit a lot of stumbling blocks. And if they can organize and pivot and do things, you're trying to judge their character as well. You know the. That component, the body language, is is the part of uh, the intimacy component. Where right here, with the eye, that's that's the intimacy component. And um, in 1971, Albert Morabian wrote a book called Silent Messages. And you know, we can argue over the research that he's done and his conclusions. And uh, but but he said something. He wrote something. He said when people. Uh, when people's not, and, and I'm, I'm misquoting it, but, but the gist is the same. When people's body language or nonverbal communications disagree or are un, um, uh, inconsistent with the words they use, people will distrust them. Yeah. So we distrust them. So you, when you're asking a question they're not expecting, it's a lot harder for them to control their body language. And that means you get the very, front and center view of uh, whether their body language and their words are consistent. Yeah. You know, it's um, in, in one of my studies, what I found was that the highest correlation to trust or trustworthiness um, is shared values. And, you know, when you talked about uh, how do they treat a server in a restaurant or, you know, how do they fly that that's essentially it. I mean, yeah. you want to, feel that you share values and, and that they don't have completely opposite values from you. Um, I, I even remember once when, when I ran for office and uh, there was this organization that uh, was considering endorsing me. Now, without getting into politics, it was an organization, a partisan organization of the other party that I, I would say belonged to. Not only that, it was a women organization. And uh, I guess by now we've established I'm not a woman, I'm a man. And so I thought the probability that they're going to endorse me is close to zero. Oh, I should add one more thing to that. My opponent was a member of that organization. Okay. So I'm. It's a woman's organization. I'm a man. It's an organization, a partisan organization of the other party from me, and they knew what party I was with. And my opponent is a member there. And uh, something happened at work that made me not be able to go to their uh, candidate forum. I offered, I'll come on a different time, a different date. Didn't never worked out. But somebody called me the next day and said that the, uh, I, I don't know if I would call her executive director, but the organizer of that organization, she stood up and said, I would like this organization to endorse Yoram Solomon. And people were shocked. I mean, he's the wrong, the wrong gender and the wrong, uh, uh, the wrong party. And his opponent is a member here. And by the way, she's sitting right there. And you're going to endorse him. And what she said was, she found I didn't even have that on my LinkedIn uh, profile. She found that I, for two years, I was a coach in Destination Imagination. I don't know how many people even know this program. I, I didn't think it was important enough to put it on my profile or my resume. Somehow she found that, and she said, somebody who does that is somebody we should endorse. So it's amazing how 
big of a part does shared values play? I, I found an yeah. 86% correlation. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, yeah, know, I'll, I'll, I'll ask, like I said, trying to go back into people's, because the formative years in terms of really a lot of your character was really developed long before your business career. And so asking, a, and part of it is, again, trying to catch them a little bit off guard, but, oh, so who's your favorite junior high teacher? And they and they hadn't thought about that. Okay, they have, why? What, what did you like about that person? What, you know, and, you know, you can learn, again, it's surprising if you listen what you learn from people. Yeah. No, that's right. And and that's that's where you pay attention to body language, to tone of voice, to consistency and things like that. Well, we're about uh, out of time, but um, I want you to tell one more thing and another okay. story, another background for something. Um, when um, you know, before before that, there is one more question. So you made an investment in a company. Think of a company that you made an invest in, investment in. How closely do you stay in touch with them after the investment? Well, the a lot of the investments I made, angel investing, I was on the board. I'd say over half of them I was on the board. Um, the one that's closest was the most recent one. I was both a founder and an investor. Um, and, you know, I had, um, back in the early 80s, I had read a book by Tracy Kidder. It was called Soul, the New Machine. And it was about uh, the invention of the latest mini computer by Data General, which was most of your viewers might not know who that is, but they're a, a computer company. And he had spent time with the uh, engineering team and he wrote this, it ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize uh, book about the soul of the new machine, about development of this. And he really made it exciting and captured what a lot of people think is very boring stuff of engineers trying to solve these problems. And I love that book and it gave me the a bit of the uh, entrepreneurial bug myself. And I always thought, uh, and I also had a, a had a interest in film and interest in, in filmmaking. And through all those startups, I thought this would have been great to do a documentary film on it. So the, the, the most recent company I invested in as, as well as started up, um, I started making a documentary film from pretty much day one. And um, I got a couple of filmmakers in and we thought it'd be like a nine month process, maybe a 20 minute film. Well, um, four years later, um, hundreds of hours of footage. Um, and I have been editing that for three years and we cut it into a, a series, a documentary series on a startup. Um, the filmmakers, I had given them some money, ran out of money after the first six months. So I actually started to learn how to film myself and, and really did everything else from that point forward. So I, I kept in close touch, but also as a documentary, uh, documentarian, I guess is what you'd call it. Uh, we have for the first time ever a observational documentary of a startup company. And um, they've had a lot of difficulties, and it's not clear they're going to be successful. Um, in fact, you might think that they're not going to be successful based upon the struggles they've had. And I remember someone saying, did you know this company was going to have difficulties or not quite make it? And I said, no, I, I put a lot of money into this in time. I thought it was going to be a very easy win. But for, we actually document this and we show, because 70% of startups fail. This may or may not be a failure, but it certainly shows to any um, you know entrepreneur who's thinking about this is that you hear about Elon Musk and Gates and all these you know wildly successful startups, seventy percent of them fail, and also fifty percent 
don't ever get off the ground. So actually, the the ratio is 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 worse than that. So seventy percent of ones that actually gets funding and startup fail. So we wanted to capture that. And so the answer is I've kept very much in touch with that company for four years after and uh, filming what's going on with that company. So you you uh, got ahead of me. I was going to ask because uh-huh. we met each other at Anten, the North Texas Angel Network, uh, while I was there. Then once I got elected, I didn't have time to to attend the meeting, so I stopped. And then about, I think it was about two years ago that you reached out to me with a very interesting project, and that's the project you're talking about. Uh, Can you share the name of this documentary? Um, We've been playing around with uh, different names. Uh, Initially, it was called The Last Startup because for many of the entrepreneurs, it was going to be their last startup. But I think right now, the name that I'm leaning towards is a, um, um, a startup odyssey or odyssey for startup because it really is a journey, and we're trying to capture that journey. So... Um, it's nine episodes, nine 45 minute episodes. I'm working with, um, a couple of faculty members at several universities. We're probably going to start out with it in some of the graduate level, um, entrepreneurial business classes. Um, in fact, um, we're going to try to uh, propose to this, this group of consortium about this being some kind of a curriculum. Along with that, we'd have to develop some classwork that go along with it. But, uh, also I'm looking to get a little bit more mainstream because it's, it's, the feedback so far is it's very interesting, but pretty narrow audience that wants to watch this. And um, so I don't know if it's a candidate for, uh, you know, curiosity stream or something like that. Probably not, probably not Netflix. Um, but anyways, it, it, we've still got part of that journey to go to figure out how we're going to deploy it, but probably a, a multiple prong approach. First one would be probably working with some of the schools as a, as a curriculum. You, you know, I, I was thinking about that as, as you're saying it, uh, you know that I teach entrepreneurship at SMU, and I was thinking once this show is out, uh, wherever it's going to be available, um, I'm thinking about making it mandatory for my students to watch it. Yeah, and so we thought about maybe we take the, the episodes and do a um, um, small excerpts out of them along with uh, class, you know, uh, notes and materials, how to write a business plan and so on and so forth. And then say, tell the student, well, the rest of it, you know, you got got to watch on your own the rest of the episode. But um, there are, um, and we have seven, you're one of the experts. We have seven different experts that comment along the way. And um, so part of it is you can see interaction. You can see what happens when people have constructive and destructive conflict. And, but we wanted to bring the audience just to have some expert kind of pop in and say, this is okay. Don't get worried that they're arguing. This is this is uh, as Yoram said. Uh, uh, startups are built upon constructive conflict because you're. I mean, uh, constructive conflict. Constructive yeah. disagreement. Yeah. Because that's how you get through ideas and go forward on it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it. it uh, I, I think it's going to be a situation. Anybody who's thinking about or wants to be an entrepreneur, um, or even any kind of business. Um, I found quite a few tradespeople that are really interested in it, even though they're not in the high tech business to kind of see what goes on behind the scenes. It's the first time you really get a seat at the table to see what happens in a startup as opposed to a visit or, you know, uh, a uh, sort of facade as to what's happening in a, in a startup. And does this, uh, does this show end? Well, I think the company is still in business. So the show, we don't know if the show is going to add with somebody is going to, uh, Go to jail for twenty years. No like another video. Yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think this will be um, um, 
you know, Theranos 2 or anything like that. But um, it, we don't know exactly how it's end because the company is still in, in business. It, um, I'm hoping it'll obviously end well um, because a lot of times companies fail multiple times and they finally get it right. But, um, um, you know, I think basically the issue, of, you know, eventually they're going to run out of money and um, we'll see what happens then. So I'm, I'm hoping there'll be a, an epilogue at the end that I can say what happens. But right now it's, it's uh, don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> or you can go to them and say, hey, I'm, I'm about to wrap up this uh, this show. You need to decide. Either you go out of business or you're successful. But it has to happen in the next three months while I'm still shooting it. Yeah, I, I think they'll, 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 yeah, I think they'll help me out with that one. <laughs> so you, you already disclosed, and, and I wanted to, uh, in full disclosure, I am involved in, in this project. I'm, I'm one of the experts yeah. that you draw on. And, and I can say that there is a lot that you can learn about trust and about entrepreneurship from that show from uh, everything I've seen. Uh, Jim, if uh, anybody's interested in getting in touch with you, learning maybe more about the project or uh, anything else, how do they get a hold of you? Um, I guess the best way is um, we started a little um, production company with the two other filmmakers and myself. It's called Over 60 Films. And um, I think between the group, there's been made over 60 films, but really we call it that because everybody was over 60 at the time. But um, So over60films.com and there's also jim.fontaine at over60films.com. Okay, over and you can see the link right below us uh, in this video. Jim, it's been great to have you on my show this time, not on your show. So thank you for being here. Uh, great, great to be here. Thank you. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.